talk about my Silicon Valley uh, career a bit. You know, I met lots and lots and lots of really brilliant people that were moral midges. That was Bruce Kunkel, a founding member of the legendary Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. On this week's episode of Nice Work, we talk with Bruce about a lot of things, including his coming up in a dirty world that was in deep crisis, as well as his incredible career arc that has seen him play with, work with, and befriend other luminaries like Marvin Gaye, Frank Zappa, Jackson Brown, Pee Wee Herman, Taj Mahal, Willie Nelson, Shogi Otis, Patti Smith, and my personal favorite, Steve Martin, just to name a very few. Bruce, Bruce was an early member of the Silicon Valley crew that took over the digital world and threatens to either improve or devour the real world. The jury's still out on that one. And he has such an interesting perspective on music, creativity, and technology, and just our shared human experience that wraps all of that up. So turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with Bruce Kunkel. All right, Bruce, you're here. You're on nice work. Really glad to have you. Thanks for being here today, Bruce. Hey, my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So let's just get into it here. I want to just give people, the good people of the Super Nice Club, an idea of your amazing career arc. Can you do it in you know 30 seconds or less? Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm um, no kidding. Fillable that way. So obviously, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band is a big sort of early anchor in your life. You've done so much since then. Oh, yeah. What got you to the Dirt Band? Uh, high school. Um, following my passion with music, I came up, you know, at, at a different time. Came up in a, in a moral crucible uh, where the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement and music uh, were the centerpieces of my life and my best friend, Jeff Hanna, who I started the Dirt Band with. And we just did that, man, and started playing clubs and did a little bit of guerrilla marketing and asked a lot of girls to come and stand in line and uh, called the press and, you know, it, kind of created our own destiny with that just being kind of naive and but it worked you know been there done that you know did a lot a lot of um recording and touring and playing 23 hours a day to establish a trademark identity of the nitty-gritty dirt band as something we succeeded in that but at the same time i um i grew very weary of the industry and Mm -hmm. Came to realize that for every guy you see up there making it, there is at least a hundred thousand, a million just as worthy that are excluded by the very process of commodifying somebody's art. So I uh, ended up leaving after a few albums and a couple of movies and a lot of TV shows and uh, did some community organizing, trying to find some authenticity in terms of what I could get back in the world. Always played music, though. So what was the transition like for you? For you were in the nitty gritty dirt band, you traveled the world playing music, and then yep. you ended up in the, really in the early, early tech scene in Silicon Valley, right? You were, 
you were helping land talent for some of the big the big early hitters like Xerox, uh, yeah, yeah. Seagate, yeah. Symantec, Cisco. What what got you there? What got you to Silicon Valley? Were you always interested in technology? Was this a another? No, no, no. It was it was kind of a a, a midlife. Uh, you see, I was a single parent at the time, and and trying to find a way to make a living. I went to graduate school and got my, my bona fides in um, industrial organizational psychology. My, wow. my naive thinking at the time was that I wanted to humanize the world of work. And when I was not able to find employment that would give me the free reign to do so, I um, became a Silicon Valley headhunter because it offered a very lucrative path. Uh, the paydays were really good. And um, I got a lot of autonomy. I took, you know, I worked maybe 20 hours a week and made a lot of dough and got a lot of free time to pursue those things that are really interesting to me. I read about 200 books a year. I meditate. I, you know, was running up to 15 miles a day at that time, lifting weights and, you know, just living a really robust life outside of the world of work. So that, that served, served me, but it was never, uh, able to find the intersection of my values and my livelihood in that environment. I made dough, but it wasn't my soul. Mm-hmm. But it got me to a place where I could um, utilize my free time to you know, make art, make music, get involved in endeavors of helping others. Uh, I started, I was a co-founder of the uh, Go Local organization here in Santa Rosa. I'm, I'm very much an advocate of localizing economics. And so I've done that. Did you, you continue playing music though this whole time? Right? All, all, the, all the time, but not, I have no commercial ambition. You know, I just don't. I, I'd rather um, help others find a way to bring art into the community instead of commodifying it as a scarcity, which it isn't. It's a false scarcity. This is something going back to when you were touring with the Dirt Band, and you just mentioned earlier that you became disillusioned with the industry, right? So now... Although I played with some really famous folks and uh, saw that up in personal, up close and personal, but you know, celebrity is is a problem in our culture, I think our addiction to it, our projection upon it. When I think there's uh, a billion geniuses next door that we never, uh, that are overlooked. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Everybody has a story. If you can, you know, take the time to, uh, you know, learn about it. And so if you'd come up, if you'd come up today with this semi-democratization of music, what I mean by that is just the much, much, there, there are, Fewer big gatekeepers. Would you agree with with Spotify, with the ability just to throw things up on YouTube? How do you think things would have gone for you if you had come up now? Oh, I, I think that's correct. The only problem I have with it is the ownership problem of the platforms. Um, I, I think all of the major platforms are fabulous, but they should be owned and benefited directly to and through those that that use them. So we still haven't uh, transcended the, what I call the downstream vapors of the story of the king in terms of ownership. We have Downstream owned- vapors of the story of the king. <laughs> uh, the, the downstream vapors of the story of the king. That's, that's, 
That's uh, that's an album title right there, Bruce. Uh. Yeah, but I but I think that's kind of the the water we swim in and aren't even aware of it. Is our economics are not um, natural law; they're a construct and they're an inertia from you know the divine rights of kings, in one form or another. And and we can't continue to extract everything. You know, we got to turn this whole thing around and. Um, and that's being, and part of that is being able to free our mind to look at things without the influence of what came before, which is a hard, hard thing to do, but that requires persistent practice into it and being super nice to people along the way. Which can be a challenge, especially in the music world when you're getting ripped off left and right. So a lot of artists would simply say, hey, getting paid point zero 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 adds more zeros, one pennies per play on Apple Music or Spotify, we just want to quintuple that or we want to, you know, we want to factor that up. And that would be the solution. Well, You're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, that that's cool, but there's whole other ways of looking at the structure of the music system. Absolutely. Yeah. Think about everything. I think, you know, uh, Amazon should be the post office and owned by all of us, you know. Spotify and Apple Music, as cool as they are, are still extracting uh, wealth to into the hands of a very few people and at the expense of a very wide panorama of artists. So in my view, in my perfect world, mm-hmm. and why I like to move the conversation along in these directions, is that platform cooperatives should replace the Wall Street uh, model of of central ownership so what would a platform cooperative in the music industry look like to you it would look exactly like spotify or apple except for it would be owned by the people that all the artists that use it okay so a cooperative that simple exactly exactly have you seen any any efforts at that yeah there's there's a number of people that are trying it the the real bugaboo in this whole system is getting the capital together to be able to do this because everybody wants a return on their investment, you know, go through wall street, that kind of crap. And that, that model has got to, that, that model has got to come to an end. If we're ever going to get uh, past, you know, high entropy throughput on all fronts of our economy. Venture capitalists, you don't think are, are doing it for the good of the world. That that's a shock. I, I, no, I don't. I don't. But they're yeah. called angels. They're called angels, Bruce. <laughs> Yes, they call themselves such. And that's, you know, what can I say? Well, so, uh, k- kind of gee whiz techno-optimism, you know, but it ain't, it's, it's totally extractive unless it's returning benefits directly to people. And um, You worked with and rubbed shoulders with a lot of the early technology pioneers. Do you see... Oh, I yeah. Do you see much of a difference in the philosophies and the outlooks today in, in the Silicon Valley sort of C-suite folks versus then? In other words, has wealth changed them or have the more idealistic sort of tech utopians been sidelined by uh, more aggressive money hunters? What's the difference? You know, I, I don't think there's much of a difference. I, I think um, techno gadgetry and, and techno wizardry mm-hmm. uh, is fine, but it's in is in a market economic model. So it is driven by profits rather than what do we authentically need our technology to do for everybody. So we're not just extracting. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I do. 
So it's a big thing, but it begins with conversations like this, where people, you know, are shook up in their beliefs a little bit and begin to investigate other avenues of potential impossibility. This is interesting to me in that your, your, your relationship to technology, because it goes way back, and I did a little wiki sleuthing, and you can dispute this, this as urban myth, but it sounds like even back when the, the dirt band was, was early, you advocated for enhanced technology. In other words, electric guitar in what was at the time an all-acoustic band, and that created a rift. Is that, is that the truth? Well, it's not. You know what? That's, that's really, that's, uh, how do you say it? It's, it's, it's a selective little bit out of a conversation that what, that's partially true, but not entirely true. I was hanging out with the mothers a lot back then. I was enamored with Zappa's uh, genius. I was actually on a second album. And um, I just wanted us to be more progressive because at the time, we were, we were a fabulous show, but we were attached to an archaic um, Hollywood model of hit making that packaged us in a way that was totally away from who we were, if you know what I mean. I don't. Explain. Well, okay. For example, we were 18 years old. We were young and naive, and God, we got a record contract, and here we go. But uh, they assigned us to producers, A&R guys, whose success had been people like Bobby V mm-hmm. and, you know, the regular commercial thing. They did not get us. And that was hugely frustrating because I was quite an artist, still am, and it was uh, it was irritating. It was irritating to my artistic sensibilities and began to see through the, the flux of the celebrity culture and began to see more and more of its bullshit. And um, at any rate. Were you alone in the band and seeing through the celebrity culture? Was this a conversation you had with your bandmates? Was there any differing opinion there? Um, I, I think a few of us were sensitive to this. Jeff, Hannah, and I are still best of friends. In fact, we just we spoke to, spoken a lot on the phone in the last month. And um, he's the guy I started the band with, and he's still in the band. I mean, the band's been going almost 55 years now. Uh, but we've taken totally different tracks, remained really good friends. But he's taken the band in a very, very successful direction. But it's not uh, what I would have done given the opportunity to <laughs> design a better system to come up through. At any rate, just just differences, you know. Um, I was called to a different path. When you're very young, you're very young, you're just exploring yourselves and you're exploring yourselves musically. It's, I think most bands, most bands break up, right? Most bands break up, even most successful bands only have a limited run. You know, we were, uh, originally Jackson Brown was my roommate and bandmate too, but he left before we ever recorded to, he had some idea that he could make it as a solo career, you know? <laughs> that that didn't work out. What a fool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've played with so many people, and I'm just going to handpick a, a few just to give Super sure. Nice Club members an idea of the, the breadth. Probably boring to hear me read them, but I'm going to try it anyway. Roseanne Cash, Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell, who we talked about recently, Amy Lou Harris, Vince Gill, Jackson Brown, Steve Martin, the Eagles, um, who else that I love? Oh, Joni Mitchell, I love, Joan Baez, 
And then people like Lightning Hopkins and other players, blues players, Frank Zappa, the glorious Frank Zappa, Taj Mahal, The Doors. One of my favorites who's local to you or was, Shuggy Otis. Is he still up there? I don't know, but we played a lot when he, his dad had a gig in San Jose, and he used to come over. We used to play a lot. Yeah, he was, was, he was over in Sebastopol, right? He was. I don't know what yeah. happened to him. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, kind of fell off the earth. John Denver, Patti Smith, Willie Nelson, some guy also local named Tom Waits. So, and, and there's so many more. And there's well, uh, comedians. Right. So any, any favorites as human beings in that list? Just some people who really jump out in your life? Well, um, you know, I, I love my bandmates because I know them and I grew up with them. And we'll always be close. Um, Jackson, I dearly love. Steve Martin is a, an old friend, and he used to open shows for us. There was a time when I was more famous than him. So that shows you how old I am. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's older. <laughs> he's all-time favorite of mine. All time. He's the only celebrity I've ever seen in person that gave me that, like, <gasps> sort of intimate he's the only person that i've ever that i can recall made me feel slightly intimidated yeah. he's absolutely brilliant and he brings it all on stage in real life he's rather humble not like he is on stage but um he's super super talented hell of a writer hell of a banjo player too yeah hell of a writer banjo player <laughs> when we did the smothers brothers comedy hour which was a big deal back then he was a staff writer for them before he'd made it. Uh, Pee Wee Herman, LeVar Burton. These are also people I'm looking at the list. Um, yep. Some favorites of mine. What were you doing with Pee Wee Herman? Was that a, uh, were you on a well, show? Pee -wee, Herman, Pee Wee Herman was managed by Bill McEwen. Oh. Uh, managed us and who also managed uh, Steve Martin and the Allman Brothers for a while before they were the Allman Brothers. I met them when we were on tour with The Doors in St. Louis, and we walked into this little bar after our gig, and here is this amazing band, and we became friends with them. They came out and lived with us in our Hollywood Hills home and got them signed to our record uh, company. Um, Dwayne and I became fast friends, learned a great deal of guitar from him and back and forth. I actually used them as my studio band on some demos i was doing for songs i was writing at the time and who's this is this the allman brothers yeah okay right so you walked into a bar with Pee Wee herman and the allman brothers is that what i'm hearing <laughs> right Pee -wee herman, no no did you miss the part where they're managed by my old manager or what oh i'm, I'm missing so many parts right yeah that's all right todd yeah you're still young and you think i'll edit my mistakes out you're you're mistaken <laughs> Before we get any further, I want to give a real quick shout out to the sponsors of the Nice Work Podcast. Thank you, sponsors. Super Nice Club members, that's you. You are the sponsors, the only sponsors, hopefully, that we'll ever need. Your support, your membership, just trying to make the world 10% nicer is so appreciated every day. So thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. There, that, that was pre-recorded. Sounded pretty sounded i thought it was super nice yeah okay good right, just good the sponsorship thing is kind of weird it's a little bit capitalist i always feel awkward with it but good to get it well, you, need, 
you know. Yeah, but you know what? You're operating in uh, a world, what I call game A, and we all have to operate within it. But hopefully, we're moving the needle towards a new game that is non-rivalrous and looks nothing like the game we're all playing now. That's kind of what my current work is. What's that? Moving the needle to game B. Talk about game B. Well, it's, it's a world that doesn't exist yet, but we're moving towards it. Hopefully, if we get enough people on the scent for it, contributing to it, but it's one where it's non-rivalrous, where all of this story of the king is no longer the principal driving force of how we do economics and everything else, where there's an accountability for what we use and put back into the world such that we're not just having a stream of high entropy throughput as the basis for our economics. You know, uh, that's got to change. Our behavior has got to change radically. We can't just keep breeding and consuming more and more and more. We need a big friggin' change. So I'm working with a lot of smart people on strategies and and discussions of how to move into that space that we can't really define yet, but we know it ain't like it is today. I have a great quote from you on yeah. this, on wealth and happiness and just uh, being a super nice human. I'm going to read you your words and have you respond to it. How do you like that? Let's see if I like them or not. <laughs> wealth is fallaciously and ubiquitously conflated with well-being. The elimination of poverty is the sweeping front-end solution to most of the ills of a complex society. Shouldn't we be framing what is sufficient for widespread, authentic well-being? Because when we do, the evidence points to the fact that beyond the exit of poverty, there is very little evidence that more wealth-slash-consumption creates more authentic well-being. We are in a deep and resistant cognitive, behavioral, moral prison, folks. We are still framing today's economics from the downstream vapors of the rights of kings. Wake up or die. We're very smart, dug in, rationalized, confirmation biased at being incredibly stupid. We're very smart at being incredibly stupid. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. What can I say? I said it and I feel it. I, um, I write this kind of crap <laughs> as it flows Fantastic. through me. Fantastic. And um, sometimes it's beyond anybody's understanding, including my own, but I use them as koans to kind of break up the train of thought that needs to be broken up, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. but, but I truly believe that. We're, we're really smart at being pretty damn stupid. You know? I'm, I you, you talk about my Silicon Valley uh, career a bit. You know, I met lots and lots and lots of really brilliant people that were moral midgets, if you know what I mean. And to me, that's the most dangerous kind of person. If you don't have those two, those two lines of development, morality and, and smarts yoked together, then we're in big trouble. And that's kind of where we are in a market-only kind of a technological hyper-society, as I see it anyway. Getting rid of the rivalrous frame that, that dominates things, as you say, you know, you, you're looking for game B, which is yep. not rivalrous. What part of our rivalrous nature is genetic? And if it is some part, do you see us able to create a culture that can recondition us? 
Yeah, I think we can. It's all about um, how do we how do we shift normative behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Right now, it's all kind of everything's kind of framed in this most intense rivalry. We're in a war culture. We have been since the end of World War II. Look at our military uh, budget and what we tend to use our technological brilliance for is the worst of social outcomes for the most part. But it pays well to certain people that have ownership of those things, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So they can control and do, in fact, control the frames in which we view things, how we frame what is. And that's what I call cognitive prison. And I think there's a lot of, um, this is a sea we swim in. The reinforcement of that cognitive prison is to see we, we swim in, and we need to radically learn ways to break out of that, to recapture fair-minded, critical dialogue, and see people for what they are instead of as rivals. I mean, we're, when, you, when you start from differences, you're always going to escalate differences. If you start from where the heart beats, what we all need, what is common to us all, then you can move outward into those places where you differ, but it doesn't matter much once you connect with the heart. So get to know your neighbors, no matter what their bumper stickers say. Where do we start? Like you started there, but where do we, where do you think it starts to go off? You know, you see, we always see that that children, young kids, they don't have that, that built in hardcore rivalry. So when, when does that start? Does it start with the, the movies they see? Does it start with just our, our, our basic cultural stories, our big stories? Well, you our, know, our, our faith, the stories of faith, you know, where, where does no, no, no. rivalry really start for people? Well, you know, it starts with the, our, we have inherited a set of proclivities mm-hmm. from our time out on the Serengeti when we were small bands of hunter gatherers competing for very, very sparse scraps with one another. So those heuristics, those rivalrous heuristics served us well when we were in small hunter-gatherer bands, you know, uh, Dunbar number about 150 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you get to the edge of that, and that's where the rivalry was becomes. Um, we see us and others. That no longer serves us in a highly complex pluralistic world of increasing complexity. So we've got to honor where we came from, but we've also got to step up to the fact that we've got to reshape how that stuff plays out, understand that these are parts of us deep, but not allow them to get played. All over the internet right now, there's a huge war going on, a mimetic war, for uh, shaping those things, and it's not mm-hmm. healthy, if you know what I mean. Uh, oh, I do, especially in the, in the United States. We're certainly at each other's throats, and we're yeah. easily triggered. By we, I mean me. We're being played. We're being played by algorithms, and it's becoming an increasing problem. If we don't step up to the fact that, you know, we're brothers and sisters in flesh community and develop some norms of behavior and sacredness that that essentially honors the rights and dignities of all generations of all species rather than product releases 
also in our in our development is um, you know that that place for sacred, that place. Um, and I don't. I'm not a big fan of uh, mythology because I think it's outgrown its use for these times. But I think it has a place mm. in terms of our our development, and we we need to honor it somehow. But it needs to be shaped in ways that it can't be hijacked. This I'm is an interesting concept. This is an interesting, I've never heard anybody make this assertion before, so I want to dig into it a little bit. The, yeah, idea, that, the idea that we have outgrown mythology, that, it's, that it has its place, but it's not necessarily a useful tool like it once was. Let me clarify. We've outgrown our need for magic mythology. So we've outgrown our need for things like astrology. Is that where you're getting with this? Well, I, I think perhaps um, that's going to persist for a long time. But what we need to build are attractors, what I call our attractors that shine so brightly that people walk away from that which isn't serving them and into that which is a better becoming, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And and part of that is being super nice, you know, and being that shining attractor that people want to emulate because you can't give away more than you can get back from the giving. But it's kind of acting that way. Giving yourself plenty of time to take care of yourself as the first principle, mind, body, and spirit, and self-culture, and nature, exercising all of those um, so that you can be super nice. If you're not taking care of yourself, you can't be too super nice back. No, and that's where it starts. I always tell people, just as I've been told, that it starts with being nice to yourself. That's where you start. Be nicer to yourself, everybody. If you're listening, be nicer to yourself <laughs> before you can be nice to others. And that's, that's not the same thing as being selfish. And a lot no, of folks, myself included, have gotten hung up on that in the past, like taking time for the self um, to self-heal and repair. In our go, go, go culture, oftentimes can feel like that is being uh, self-indulgent. Yeah, well, it's not self-indulgent. It's actually essential if you're going to maintain and put out the best person that can be put out from, from who you are in the world today. You've got to take care of self. You need to exercise body, mind, and spirit in yourself, in your culture, and in nature. And if you do that on a daily basis, it's the essence of my practice. Um, I think you can you know, show up more and more bigger and bigger with more to offer more and more people. Going back to a different part of your career for a second here, you coached and you've counseled hundreds of individuals and, and businesses through change and transition over the years. Even before COVID, we'd entered into a global time of change and transition, arguably unlike any before. So what kind of advice do you have off the cuff for people who are, for the first time, really waking up and recognizing that, that um, how do I put this, that the next 10 years, the next decade, is going to be nothing like the last 10 years. Nothing like the last decade. Yeah, you know, we're accelerating. Things are accelerating around us. I don't know if we have the adaptive capacity, actually, but we gotta try to keep up with assuring our own humanity, assuring our own uh, values in action in practice with one another. Because the world we're, um, 
we're allowing to happen with this incredible acceleration of everything is a hideously complex uh, situation. There's so many currents that are bumping up against each other that we can't even see. And that's going to accelerate with, um, you know, AI gaminess and all kinds of stuff. I don't know. You better be be together and, and get to know your neighbor, no matter what their bumper sticker is, and share vegetables with them and, and start uh, talking, starting from the heart. That's all I can say. Well, I'm going to make it more personal to try to coax a little more out of you. Okay, we're gonna, you're going to give me a little, a little coaching session here because I've been really struggling for years with how to be able to adapt quickly enough to, to these changes, how to, how to put myself in a situation that is both responsible right, as a parent, partner, uh, an individual, and flexible so that I can jump when things get literally too hot. Now remember, I worked for six years with the preeminent think tank on resource scarcity and climate change. So I knew what was happening, what is happening. And I still find myself paralyzed when it comes to just really astute future planning. So what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me, Bruce? I know, but I'm not doing anything. What, where's the disconnect? What can I do better? Uh, keep practicing, my brother. You know, that's all any of us can do. I mean, we're in a huge conundrum of our own making here. Uh, we keep complexifying the world. But and, and, and thank you, by the way, for your work with uh, post Postcarbon. Yeah. That's where I met you, actually, was drawn to that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a existential conundrum i think that the best of us wake up with every morning how can i um you know face this craziness and put my best self out there i don't know you just got to practice into it my friend and have a great community of others that are on a similar scent and put yourself out there to help anybody else along their own path that's all i can think of i think that's what really inspired a lot of the super nice club was this idea that it's really hard to do it alone. You can't hunker down and bunker down and get anywhere. You need to be in a community of like-minded individuals that can look out for one another. And that includes your neighbor with whatever bumper sticker you don't like, because that's your neighbor, right? Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And America is hideously trapped in this super myth of the individual in my view. And I think it's a pathology. I think it leads to the pathology of celebrity projection, all of that kind of stuff, embedded authoritarianism, rather than exercising into one's personal sovereignty in the service of greater good, which I think you're drawn to in a big way, which I've uh, always been drawn to. And I know there's a universe of others that are also doing that. But there's a shortcut that I, I get drawn to as well. And that shortcut is sort of the... Um, I'm riffing here, but like the commune model, right? Go find a lot of people who, who think like you as an individual and move to an area where they're already at or, or start a, a, a neighborhood or buy a bunch of cheap houses in Detroit, you know, that kind of thing with like-minded individuals. Uh, you know, I see it, but at the same time, I'm torn towards making it better where I'm at. Well, I am too, uh, but I think all of these strategies need to be tried. And I think everybody mm -hmm. needs to find that place in their own heart that is authentic to them and go out and put a stake in the ground and try to make something better. 
You know, it's not just one size fits all. It's all of us putting an authentic stake in the ground and moving, moving a bunch of attractors. Hopefully that'll pull us out of the death spiral we're all in now. You were, you were around back in the day when California was a hotbed of communes. And well, actually, yeah, I and kind of had one for a while. Tried that you, out. You did? Yeah, that was part of, you know, when I was doing my com- community organizing, I was a very political fella. And um, lived together with a bunch of people. We had a store. We, had, we started a free clinic. We started a musician's co-op. I uh, had free concerts in the park, bringing local musicians into venue where they could be seen and heard, because I think that's really important. And where was that? Long Beach, California. Right. How long did that last? It lasted several years. Those were different times. It was, like I said, I came up in a moral crucible. We, mm-hmm. we could see everything was going to shit then. We had no mentorship at all on how to get out of it. So we tried things and we made lots of mistakes. But we also, some of us learned from them. And a, a great deal of my fellows have copped out and become, you know, the yuppies that um, the boomers, uh, you know, got a really ugly rep and deservedly so for. And some of us have held on to the values and tried to do the best we could with what we got, you know, and it's been a bumpy ride sometime. Are there, are there lessons there for the high school kids that are growing up in a moral and, and literal environmental crucible today? Oh God. Yeah. 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 And I say all power to them because they can see as clearly as any generation that's ever come along that mm-hmm. what we're doing is totally, um, and irreversibly unsustainable unless and until we find our way into a radicalization of how we live, a, a, new, a new becoming, a game B, if you will. Yeah, we do. We need a uh, shout out then, speaking of that, to Lester Brown for his series of books, Plan B. Plan B 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. If you're interested in what's going on with climate and resource issues around the world. Lester Brown, he was the founder of the Earth Policy Institute, um, peer of of Rachel Carson way back in the day. Silent Spring is another incredible book to read. Anybody listening, check out Plan B by Lester Brown. You know, there's there's a lot of really smart, uh, morally evolved people that I network with these days. And we have an opportunity, the good part of social media is that we have an opportunity to reach out and connect with like-minded people that are on the same scent worldwide. Mm-hmm. And I found some incredible people that way. There's a lot of people that'll hijack that too, but uh, we're only as strong and as viable and as epistemologically sound as our networks are. So build really good networks. That's really good career advice in general. It really is. And you're really well suited to give career advice, given your experience as, as a headhunter um, and as a corporate counselor. So creatives, musicians and other creatives, what are some of the common traits you've identified in, in all the successful people you've been around, including yourself, that, that you can put out there as, as advice to people coming up? Well, I don't know. It's, it's defining success and, and success in the crucible of what, you know? Yeah. For mm-hmm. me, I've always been a bad boy in Sunday school, you know, and asked the tough questions and didn't necessarily, I shook things up a lot. Uh, I think you, you have a little of that in you too, Todd. I see you doing a shit disturber thing pretty well all the time. 
You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, what do you want to be successful in? What do you want mm -hmm. to build? Do you want to fit into what's existing? I know you got to make a living. Everybody does. But um, are there other ways to do that other than going to work for the Apple store or Macy's or whatever that will suck your energy dry from sleep cycle to sleep cycle and extract your human value? Is there another way you can find to intersect, make your living, and also do what is passionate from your heart and soul and in a broader service of the world? So you're not finding a direct correlation between happiness and zeros of your income? Oh, hell no. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, In fact, happiness is overrated. And that's kind of what we're sold in our economics is kind of the big carrot that um, influences everybody all the time in terms of our quote unquote free choice behaviors. So the difference between happiness and contentment? Well, happiness and being on track with the authenticity of who you are. You know, I don't think that's necessarily happiness as much as it is the well-being of living an integral, integrated, integral life, if you know what I mean. I do. I, I think I do. Happiness, I think, is chasing commercial baubles from this market cycle to the next market cycle, that kind of thing. And I think it's what's sold to us. Um, but don't yeah. we have, don't we, can't we at least have moments of happiness that we thoroughly enjoy oh, in the now, so. right? So there, there, are, there are happinesses that aren't just, ooh, I just spent, you know, $600 on a um, thing that I wanted. I totally get that. But I think my, I can only speak for myself. My happiness comes from reading and applying a great deal of knowledge and, and belly laughing with friends and playing music and, and getting outside and walking around and, and doing stuff that's authentically feeding well-being rather than getting distracted by syrupy products and and lures of uh, happiness. <laughs> when people ask me if I'm happy, they I think the question that what the question often is is are you in a happy place? Is your you know, are you in a happy state of mind? And it's a tough one for me because I tend to think of happiness now at this point in my life, not so much as a permanent state, but as moments. And so yeah. the question is, am I satisfied that I'm living a life that allows me to sort of hop from happy lily pad to lily pad and have a few of those here and there? And then if that's the question, the answer is yes. But I'm not happy, actively happy in every now. Does that make well, sense? Oh, it does. And, and I'm not looking to be. That would be the sort of pharmaceutical-induced bliss, right? Yeah, well, I, I think you're an evolved human being, Tom. <laughs> you're the only person that would say that. But uh, there is a difference between searching for this permanent state of happiness that we're all chasing, right? This, this oxytocin forever release. That's a hard one, and it leads to so much disappointment because people look around and they see smiling faces over social media, and it's permanent happiness, and, and yeah. we're not getting there. And it's the bullshit that's killing our spirit, man. So happiness is a wonderful byproduct of living well, but it's not. Yes, 
There, that's it. Okay, we got around to it, guys. You're listening. We finally got around to it. Happiness is a wonderful byproduct of living well. Which includes giving and reaching out to others and being authentic and, and who you are and what you do as much as possible. Okay. You know, it's a crazy world, but you got to, you know, and we all got to survive. But, you know, bring your intention every day when you wake up. Make your bed and start, start anew, man. So living well is the goal. And what living well means to you might be something different for somebody else. But getting caught in the trap of overextending yourself and overdonating your time and your life sources to someone who's just sucking you dry for their venture might be yep. something that you want to take a look at. Would that summarize some career advice for you? Oh, it, it definitely does. Because got it. Okay, we got it. <laughs> It's a long trek, you know, this life we're given. And it's, a, and it's a wonderful, sacred thing, man. So don't screw it up by getting sidetracked all the way, you know? God, I wish that we could just dive into all of your book recommendations because every time I see you or talk to you, you're reading three or four or five or 10 books. Like you said, you do 200 a year, which is incredible. Before I ask you to give your super nice challenge to our, our super nice club members, we just throw out two just two books right now that you're looking at. Oh God. Really? Just yeah, two? Yeah, just two. What are you reading right now? All right. I'm reading, hold on. I'm reading about seven books right now. I'm reading Accidents. What is the title of this thing? Yeah. Accidents, Ages of, of Discord, Beyond the Valley, Beyond Silicon Valley, <laughs> uh, Deep Survival, Rereading Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors by Sagan, who is just a beautiful book. Uh, what else? Uh, the Origin of Nature of Life on Earth. The Inner Life of Animals. The Green New Deal by Rifkin. Read that recently. Mm -hmm. uh, Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher is a friggin' gem if you haven't read that one. So no graphic novels, no comic books, no light reading. Uh, you know, if it passes my way, you know, I, do, I do some sci-fi once in a while, but yeah, I'm really interested in, in, uh, what makes the world turn, you know? All time favorite sci-fi writer. Oh, uh, I don't know. You pick one for me. Okay. Okay. Heinlein. Okay. I'll go yeah. with that. Yeah. Stranger to strange land. It's on my list to reread soon. Share water, brother. Yes. Um, super nice challenge. You got anything for the super nice club members, something they can do a challenge for them to make their world and others world a little bit nicer. Yeah. Get a lot of rest, get a full sleep cycle, wake up in the morning, make your bed, do whatever you need to do to be good to yourself, eat well, exercise well, um, spend some time with your inner self and then go out in the world and be nice to people. That is quite a challenge. I'm in. I'm in. I'm especially the resting well. That's so important. We often deprive yeah. ourselves of sleep. There's, there's a weird culture out there of the pride in, I only slept six hours a night, or I only sleep four hours. Well, let, me, let me recommend another book I just read in the last year called Why We Sleep. It'll change your behavior if you grok it. I've read it. It, yeah. it, it reinforced my behavior. I thought, wow, that's one thing I do right. I sleep well. That's, <laughs> anybody says, what are you really good at, Todd? Ah, 
sleeping. <laughs> well, that's that's why you put put back into the world some super nice stuff, Toddy. So, do you have a question for me, Bruce? You get you get one question, you get one shot to take me down or to learn something about me. Yeah. What gets you up in the morning? Uh, the need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the that's the truth. Um, I, I don't, I don't get up during the night. Uh, what gets me up in the morning? So do you mean what, what inspires me each day? Yeah. Uh, what, is your pur- what is your purpose here in this world? Well, I have a, I have a purposeless life, which I love. I, I think I, I, I thought about that a lot. You know, I thought about that. That's why I have a degree in religious studies is I was a quester, right? I was questing, looking for the ultimate answer. Uh, what is it, 42, 43? It's 42. Is it 42? Yeah, <laughs> thanks. I get up because of 42. And at this point, I just get up because life is worth living. The the big mystery is interesting. I have no more desire to solve it, to crack the code, to find out the why, anything like that. Uh, It doesn't even interest me anymore. If I found out for some reason, I'd be, oh, cool. But really, I get up because there's just a lot of interesting things to do, a lot of neat projects to take care of. I'm never bored. Um, when I am at my most <clears throat> happy, mm-hmm. content, is when I have a project beyond my current project. Okay, right. so if I am working on a film script, let's say, or working on a job for a client or something like that, or super nice club, all of these things are great. When I get nervous and scared and, and feeling out of sorts, Either I'm not getting enough exercise or enough sex, or most typically it's that I don't have the next thing beyond that, right? That, that pull, that pull forward that gets me really, it doesn't distract me. It doesn't make me think, ooh, I can't wait to get to that. It actually pulls me through and into the current project in a really great way. Does that make sense? Beautiful, man. And, and you are a natural attractor i must say hmm well i appreciate the compliment still working on all of this stuff still working on being nice for myself definitely uh it's it's a daily challenge and and the club keeps me on track wearing these hats uh like a little halo Uh, (laughs) i'm not an angel or an angel investor but they definitely keep me from shaking my fist in fury in traffic sometimes just 10 percent, todd just 10 percent Bruce, appreciate you a lot for being on here. I really do. Thanks for the the discussion, for always asking me to take a deeper look at the whys and at the at, and the inner workings of of our larger culture, especially when it comes to the intersection of of technology and humanity. Right, that's what your social media feed is so often filled with. These these articles. Yeah questions around that intersection that make me nervous and they make me upset and they make me scared sometimes but they're when always I'm doing the right thing hmm? then i'm doing it right yeah yeah no you're doing it right i would the only thing right. is you, you the articles that you link to are often really long they're more than 100 words and it's uh, <laughs> i just i can't i just read the comments for I hope that other people summarize the the anger or rage or hopefulness do you feel hopeful bruce do you feel hopeful for us um i if i didn't i wouldn't get up in in the morning and do what i do Good. um 
I mean, that's, that's what I have is, is I, I know enough about the broad panorama potential and possibility that we have within us to, to make, mm-hmm. um, but we've got a lot of work to do to get over this crap we've, uh, we've created so far. We have a lot of work to do. We really do. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to doing the work. So and yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad that you are too. I'm glad you're here. Glad to know you. And again, thanks for being on. We'll have you back on a year from now just to see where we're at. It's going to be an interesting, All right, it's going to be an interesting next 12 months. And I'm going to want to hear your, uh, your observations. All right, brother. Love you a lot. Take care. You too. So there you have it. Nice work with Bruce Kunkel. Bruce, Bruce could just go in so many directions and talk for hours about so much that we just got a little taste for what the man's mind has done, can do, and will do. My big super nice takeaway, wow, I bet I need to read more. I need to read more books. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, gosh, it would be great to have more knowledge about just lots of things? I do, I do, and Bruce does, and it's great. He also has experiential knowledge from getting in there and working with people in all sorts of pursuits. So maybe my big takeaway is a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of, gosh, I need to to broaden my horizons, get out there more, hang out with more people, work on more projects, because he just inspires me. And I hope inspires you in some way, if you enjoy the conversation. Oh, there's another airplane. And uh, they're getting more common now. Anyway, hi, Airplane. I hope you got something out of this this uh, this episode of Nice Work. If so, let us know. Feedback, you know, reviews, contact us. Check out superniceclub.com. If you like our gear and you want to be part of the club and just proclaim your niceness in that way, go ahead. We'll uh, ship you some stuff in exchange for a little bit of uh, money. That's how it works. You can get 15% off with code SUPERNICEBRUCE. Yep, it's the end of my commercial plug there. But really, thanks for being part of the club. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you have any suggestions or recommendations for quality improvement, can't control the airplanes, or guests, let us know. All right, Todd, T-O-D, at superniceclub.com, or reach out on Facebook, Instagram, etc. Stay nice, everyone. Sitting in this war, closing my account at the angry store. Just wanna be nice, and baby, that's the rub. That's why I'm joining the super nice club. So come on in, the water is warm. You and I can wait out this passing storm. Just wanna be nice, and baby, that's the rub.